Welcome back to MLEX's podcast, the first for the year. I hope you've managed to take a break and that you're looking forward to what 2022 has in store. Hopefully things will be a little easier than they have been in 2021. My name is James Paniki. I'm from MLEX's Asia Pacific team. And now make sure you've scanned your eye retinas and handed over all of your biometric data for today's program because we'll be taking a look at the many but largely unsuccessful attempts to regulate the acquisition and storage of such data in the US. And for antitrust fans, in about 10 minutes' time, we'll be crossing to Southeast Asia to discuss Singapore's attempts to have competition and environmental policy settings working alongside one another in perfect harmony. It's something that's likely to resonate across the region. First up, though, yes, we are now all familiar with biometric data. In fact, you could argue that we always have been. It's hard to think of a TV crime show where the detective doesn't refer to fingerprints, for example. But the collection and storage of biometric data is now occurring on an industrial scale. In the US, where there's no national privacy legislation in place, it has been left to the states to attempt to create a regulatory framework – And it hasn't been an especially successful endeavour so far. Amy Miller is a senior correspondent covering privacy, data security and antitrust from our offices in San Francisco. And she joins me now. Uh, So, Amy, why did so many states propose bills relating to biometric information? Well, there's been growing concerns over the misuse of this highly sensitive personal information, and it's been fueling government investigations, and it's also led to some eye-popping class action settlements with tech companies. And uh, in, in general terms, what did these proposals from U.S. states aim to do? What was the intention? Well, most of the state biometric proposals are modeled after the 2008 Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or, or BIPA, as it's commonly called. And the law requires companies to tell residents in writing when their biometric data is collected or stored and when they must obtain a written release to collect, store, or use that data. So so all of these laws basically require companies to do much of the same thing. Well, so given the very real concerns over the misuse of biometric data, Uh, You would have assumed that it would have been easy to pass this kind of state legislation, but that wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah, you would think so, but no. Um, Nearly all of the bills that were introduced failed. Uh, They died in California, Colorado, Kentucky, Maryland, South Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Washington, and West Virginia. So it really didn't matter if it was a a Democrat or a Republican-dominated state legislature. They all just died. Most of them didn't even move out of committee. Well, why was that? I mean, why did these laws prove so difficult to pass uh, given the potential for misuse of uh, biometric data? Mm. That's because industry lobbyists backed by companies like Amazon uh, have pushed back hard on the targeted bills. Um, That's because there's a lot of money to be made from these biometric technologies. Uh, The global market for uh, biometrics is expected to hit $44 billion by 2026. That's according to a recent study from a global industry analyst. So they've got a lot at stake in trying to make sure that these uh, legislative proposals don't affect their bottom line. Okay, well, let's talk about that pushback from uh, industry. And you've mentioned companies such as Amazon. But what was the best argument put forward by those opposing these bills? What was their best argument against the uh, biometric bills? 
Well, there's a fear that these uh, bills would fuel sort of a wild west of nuisance litigation. Um, BIPA includes uh, a private right of action, and it provides for uncapped statutory damages of up to $5,000 if there's an intentional violation. And so damages can add up quickly. So they were concerned that if other states followed, that there would be a similar wave of litigation like there has been in Illinois. Well, let's talk about Illinois. I mean, what part did that fear of nuisance litigation play in the Illinois BIPA? I mean, what were lawmakers concerned about? Well, uh, when they passed the bill, in, excuse me, when they passed the law in 2008, um, the, the risk for litigation for companies was, was low, and it was for many, many years. But all of that changed in 2019 uh, when the Illinois Supreme Court held that just a mere violation of BIPA was enough to confer standing to sue in court. And residents didn't need to allege that they suffered any subsequent injury or harm to obtain damages. So, you know, people have filed hundreds hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits in federal court and in Illinois state court against all type of companies for a a wide variety of um, violations. Most of them are are employees uh, suing over um, timekeeping mechanisms, like if you have to show your uh, face or your fingerprint to get paid or for payroll purposes. Um, They've been suing over those if they haven't gotten correct permission to, to use that information. Um, but tech companies who collected information for facial recognition programs and that sort of thing, they have been a favorite target. Uh, Facebook paid a record $650 million in 2020 to resolve a collection of BIPA lawsuits in Illinois. And then after that, it announced it was shutting down its facial recognition program. Mm. Okay, so given the difficulty in getting this kind of biometric legislation through, are state legislators giving up on the idea in 2022? No, no, surprisingly not. Uh, There are a few uh, BIPA-styled bills that are still pending in states like Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey. They haven't gone very far, but we'll see what happens this year. And then legislators in Washington State and West Virginia have reintroduced bills that would regulate the collection and sale of biometric data. Um, And legislatures in several states have already introduced or pre-filed some broad consumer privacy bills, including uh, Florida, Maryland, Washington State, Indiana, and the District of Columbia. And those are going to address some types of of biometric information. So I think in the weeks ahead, we can expect to see even more proposals, either specifically targeted at biometric information or or as part of, of broader consumer privacy legislation. So I think, you know, we can expect that state legislatures are going to continue to be the epicenters of the debates in the U.S. around privacy regulation this year, like they have been for the last couple of years. And Amy, with 50 states in the Federation, it sounds like there'll be a lot of work for you uh, over the coming year. But thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Thank you, James. Amy Miller is a senior MLEX correspondent working out of our San Francisco offices, and her insightful analysis of this issue is ready for you to read and enjoy. It's titled, Targeted Biometric Privacy Proposals Fail in U.S. State Legislatures. And you'll find the analysis at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very latest reporting and analysis from the MLEX team. And subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of our work covering state-based privacy legislation in the U.S. with all of the highs and lows that came with it. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. It's great to be with you. 
And don't forget you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And please leave a review where possible and help us spread the word. Now, regular listeners will have heard of the global debate over what's referred to somewhat disparagingly as hipster antitrust. That is, the suggestion that the levers of competition policy settings can be used to address broader social issues. Yet when it comes to the environment, the notion of enlisting antitrust regulations and antitrust regulators to address sustainability issues is already part of the mainstream. In Southeast Asia, the highly influential Competition and Consumer Commission of Singapore has told MLEX that it's ready to follow the European Commission's lead to ensure that competition policy is geared up to help manage the city-state's green transition. So what is going on? Our Southeast Asian correspondent Jet Damaso Santos has been covering the issue and she joins us now from Jakarta. So, um, Jet, the first question is, why is the Singapore regulator focusing on sustainability right now? Right. So sustainability issues, this has been a focus by competition regulators um, all over the world. It's a growing trend, but it's still relatively new in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia. Often, as is often the case in the region, the Singapore regulator is among the first to tackle the new or more complex issues, like the digital economy, for example. Uh, But at the same time, um, this question has been bubbling away in Singapore for years. You know, the green agenda is um, has been pushed in Singapore for a couple of years now. Also, earlier last year, the government launched its its green plan for 2030. So basically, there is a national plan to steer the country towards more sustainable solution. You know, they want to turn Singapore into a carbon services hub. They want to turn it into a center for green finance in Asia. So they want to promote investments in cleaner energy options. So all of these have policies that could um, have competition implications. Okay, so why are we talking about this? What exactly uh, is on the agenda here? All right. So um, the question really is now whether um, these sustainability initiatives would uh, conflict, would run in conflict with the competition law. Oh, Singapore's competition framework doesn't have any specific guidelines or exemptions for sustainability initiatives. So this means, for example, if a retail industry association wants to get its members to um, sign a commitment to stop selling less sustainable products, you know, a clear sustainability initiative. But could that be considered an anti-competitive agreement? Um, if a large company, say the dominant player in an industry, decided it's now going to refuse to provide goods or services to uh, customers who have unsustainable business practices, um, could that be construed as an abuse of dominance? So can environmental benefits basically come under the exemption for net economic benefits? So these are the questions that need to be answered so that companies can be reassured that um, their sustainability initiatives will not get them into antitrust trouble. So beyond this, um, the government, of course, is also expected to come out with several policies that would incentivize more sustainable options or solutions. 
again, these all have an impact on competition. In fact, they're expected to sort of distort the market in favor of greener options, right? And so it's also part of the CCCS's job, the Singapore Competition Regulator's job, to sort of help guide the development of these policies. Okay, so that is clearly going to be the CCCS's uh, job. What has the regulator done on this and are there any indications on the uh, regulators thinking at this stage? Singapore in general, the Singapore government in general, always tries to sort of find a balance between supporting innovation and guarding, safeguarding against harms. And so this is what we've seen from the CCCS so far. Um, they've advised the government, a couple of government agencies already on, uh, on sustainability issues. Uh, first, when the National Environment Agency wanted to introduce a beverage container take-back scheme, for example. So uh, the commission advised them on how to put in safeguards to make sure that the industry players won't be able to exchange commercially sensitive information. Um, and then there was a time the Urban Redevelopment Authority wanted to deploy electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And so the CCCS again came in to help design competitive tenders. And um, even for the private buildings, uh, they encouraged them to also conduct competitive tenders and um, even educated them on the implications of interoperability standards. So in other words, Jet, the CCCS has in the past intervened. It has responded to these kinds of policy challenges. Right, right in a small way so far. So we haven't seen big um, market-changing policies yet, but we expect those to come soon, of course. Uh, but in these small examples, we can see how the CCCS is Try to find that balance between supporting sustainability initiatives while minimizing the potential harm to competition. On the corporate behavior part, there isn't much to draw from yet, but there is one case that sort of illustrates how the CCCS is willing to consider environmental benefits. Um, a few years ago in 2018, five poultry distributors wanted to create a joint venture and um, was asking for for the commission's approval. So basically what they wanted to do was to combine all of their slaughtering facilities into uh, one facility, so just one joint venture. In the decision, the commission did look at the potential environmental benefits. So uh, the companies were claiming the joint venture would also increase uh, efficiencies in their use of water, energy, and even reduce carbon emission. And in the decision, the CCCS said, um, the regulator said, it's probably true, we accept the premise, but um, the applicants were not able to quantify exactly how much the savings would be. And so with that, without that figure, it was difficult for the commission to evaluate properly whether the savings are objective or result directly from the proposed joint venture or even if they're significant. I mean, in the end, they did ultimately find that the joint ventures net economic benefits outweighed the potential harm, um, including in helping alleviate land shortage problems. Uh, so it approved it. But, it, you know, there is that question of how environmental benefits are going to be considered. And what you're suggesting is that the CCCS 
isn't simply going to wave through all projects in the name of environmental credentials, that it is going to uh, hold all of these ideas up to to tough scrutiny, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are already examples, I believe, in other jurisdictions where claims of of environmental benefits uh, sort of do lead to antitrust harm later on. And so definitely we can expect the, C- the triple CS to look at all these closely. Okay, so uh, Jet, what's next in this saga? I mean, what should we be expecting? Uh, so... The commission has called for research proposals on all these competition questions related to sustainability. Uh, following the poultry case, it specifically said research could researchers could try to quantify the environmental benefits of, you know, potentially anti-competitive business collaborations. So that, say, in that case, you know, companies or the commission would be would be able to really calculate. Uh, or put attached numbers to these benefits. Eventually, so following all of this, I believe the commission will clarify its position on how sustainability issues overlap with competition laws. But until then, um, I guess companies and lawyers can find guidance, can find some indication of how the CCS is going to act in its recently issued uh, guidance for business collaborations. Uh, That guidance doesn't make any specific references to sustainability, but it does make clear that the regulator is going to consider context, um, you know, various other factors in determining whether uh, an agreement um, has benefits that outweigh its negative competition effects. Plus, the fact that you know, we know that sustainability issues are now on the regulator's mind, then uh, that could mean arguments for environmental benefits are not completely out of the question. Okay, Jet, look, this all amounts to some significant developments in Singapore. So it was great talking to you as always. Thank you for keeping us up to date on these developments. Great. Thank you so much too, James. Jet Damaso Santos, MNEX's Southeast Asia correspondent, speaking to us there from Indonesia. And Jet's thorough analysis of this issue containing the Singapore regulator's comments is online and just a click away. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And that's it for today. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. Until then, from me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company today. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.